All right, everyone. Well, welcome back. We've arrived at the point of our service where we're going to have the reading and preaching of God's word. And so please turn your attention to the screen where Oliver will read for us. Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes Ed, when he must deliver the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you, Oliver. What gives you hope? When you look at your life and challenges that you're facing, or when you look at the world and some of the brokenness that you see, what gives you hope? What gives you hope when you read the newspaper and um, you hear that there are war crimes being committed against innocent civilians, women and children in Ukraine? What gives you hope when you read that the Great Barrier Reef might not exist in 75 years at the rate that it's being bleached. What gives you hope? What gives you hope when a friend calls you and lets you know that they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness? What gives you hope when you're at the side of a loved one whom you've lost? What gives you hope? A number of weeks ago, I was watching a video lecture on the topic of hope. The lecture was delivered by a Christian academic and pastor 
Dr. N.T. Wright, and he spoke in a location which was rather unusual for a lecture. He spoke in the middle of a cemetery. It's not a place that most of us associate with hope. And as he spoke, he walked amongst the different headstones until he came to one ancient stone in particular. He knelt down beside it and read its inscription. And what was written on that stone was a poem, a poem which summarizes the Christian hope. The poem said, go home, dear friends, and leave us here, and let us lay till Christ appear. When Christ appear, we hope to have a joyful rising from the grave. And Dr. Wright pointed out that throughout the centuries, the hope of the Christian faith has always been rooted in the resurrection. And so if you asked a Christian throughout the centuries, what gives you hope in the face of famine, plagues, wars, racism, and so on? What gives you hope? The resounding answer is the resurrection. But sadly, the modern Western evangelical church, we don't really focus on the resurrection so much anymore. We talk a fair bit about the cross, but the resurrection has often been sidelined. If you ask a modern evangelical Western Christian, what is the hope of the Christian faith? You'll hear an answer like this. Jesus died for your sins. So if you believe in him, you'll go to heaven. Have you heard that before? Jesus died for your sins, and so if you believe in him, you'll go to heaven. Well, what's missing from that message? What's missing is the resurrection. What's missing is hope. Believe in Jesus, and you'll go to heaven. That gives, sure, maybe that gives you hope in the same way that if you're on the Titanic and it's sinking, a lifeboat gives you hope. But it doesn't give any hope for the boat. And it doesn't give us any hope for our world. Believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven is essentially acknowledging this world is going to hell in a handbasket, but at least you got your ticket out of Doge. And the Apostle Paul wants to say, that's not enough. That's not enough. The message of Christianity is a message of hope. Hope for you and hope for this world. And that hope is grounded in the resurrection. And so we need to be a people that cling to the resurrection because it is our hope and it's the hope for our world. The audience to whom Paul wrote this section of 1 Corinthians were not so dissimilar from us. There were a group of Christians in the church in Corinth who had sidelined the importance of the resurrection. In fact, they'd gone a step further. In verse 12, we read Paul says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So there were some Christians in the church in Corinth who outright denied the resurrection. Now, I think a bit of historical context here is helpful. Um, We know based on verse 11 that these Christians believed in Jesus' resurrection. They accepted the message that Paul had brought them. So they believed, yes, God has raised Jesus from the grave but he's not going to do that for us. God raised Jesus bodily back to life, but he's not going to do that for us. Well, what did these Corinthians think would happen? Um, We're not entirely sure. 
There were a number of beliefs which were common in the ancient Greco-Roman world about what happened when someone died. One of the beliefs you might encounter would be in the catacombs of Rome where you can see certain Latin inscriptions which say, once I was not, once I was, now I am not, and I don't particularly care. (laughs) Maybe you've encountered that line of thinking. More commonly, however, was a view popularized by the philosopher Plato. Now, Plato taught that the body was mortal, but the soul was immortal. And so, eventually, when someone died, their body went in the ground or it was burned. It was gone. That's the end of the story for your body. But your soul would leave your body and go on elsewhere, perhaps to a place like Hades to exist in a sort of shadowy existence, or perhaps to a place like paradise. But whatever that experience would be, it certainly was not physical and it was not embodied. And I just think it's so interesting that today in our culture and even in the church, I think we're disciples of Plato more so than the Bible when we think about death. And so there were a group of these Corinthians who perhaps they had, you know, sort of Platonist beliefs about death. And when they heard Paul talking about the resurrection, they didn't know what to do with that. And so they interpreted it metaphorically. They interpreted it spiritually. They're saying, okay, we're not really going to rise physically, but maybe in a certain sense, we've already been raised. Maybe we're, our, our spirits or our souls, our minds have been elevated to a new reality. And to this group and to us today, the Apostle Paul wants to say, the resurrection isn't of secondary importance. Because if we sideline the resurrection, we drain Christianity of its power and we rob the gospel of its hope. In verses 13 to 19, the Apostle Paul wants to do a thought experiment. He says, okay, you're denying the resurrection. Let's play that game. Let's see what happens if we think this through to its logical conclusions. And so I'd invite you, if you have your Bible open or if you have the bulletin, to turn with me to verses 13 to 19 as we go through Paul's thought experiment. So the Apostle Paul begins in verse 13 with his thesis statement. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you say... God won't raise human beings, then to be logically consistent, you need to also affirm God did not raise Jesus Christ, who was a human being. And if God did not raise Jesus Christ, oh, there's a whole bunch of things that follow. He's going to spell them out each here for us. If God did not raise Jesus, verse 14, then our preaching, the Greek word is kerygma, our message, our message is in vain. Our message is useless. You see, the the apostles didn't come preaching a new philosophy. They didn't come bringing a new moral code that they wanted to encourage people to live. They didn't come with good advice. The apostles came with news. The apostles came saying, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Roman government under Pontius Pilate. He died on that cross. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And three days later, he rose, and we have seen him. They came bearing news, but if Jesus is not raised, then that message is empty. It's fake news. It's fake news 
brought by a group of con men. Verse 15, if Jesus has not been raised, then the apostles have been misrepresenting God. They're testifying God has done something that he has not done. It's an empty message brought by liars. And if you've put your faith in that message, if Jesus hasn't been raised and you believe that message, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The apostles brought a message when they said, Jesus has conquered sin and death. And the way that we know this is that God has raised him. That's his justification. But if God hasn't raised Jesus, there's no evidence that we should have confidence we too have been freed from our sins and death. Lastly, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Christianity had a unique relationship with death in the ancient world. You see, most ancient cultures, when they thought about death, they viewed it as the enemy that defeated all. When someone died, they were lost for good, irretrievably lost. But Christians believed that when someone died, they would go to be with Christ, and that when Christ returned to this world, they would rise again. So they weren't irretrievably lost. They were, in an essence, like someone that's fallen asleep. They're going to wake up again. But Paul's saying here, if Christ has not been raised, then the dead are irretrievably lost. They're gone. Paul concludes his thought experiment in verse 19. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You've believed a lie brought by con men. You have no hope, and death is going to win. The tone of this section of the letter is very dark, but in verse 20, it changes dramatically. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, on a particular Sunday around 30 AD, got up and walked out of the tomb that he was in on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we're meeting here on Sunday, and the church has met every Sunday since then to commemorate that historical fact. Jesus has been raised, and that changes everything. Now, you might be sitting here wondering to yourself, okay, well, even if it's true, even if that is a fact that Jesus died and was raised a few days later, how does that give me hope today? You know, we're 2,000 years removed from that incident. Our culture is different. We're in a different part of the world. How does that give me hope when I look at the challenges in my life or I look at the brokenness of the world around me? That's an excellent question. And to you, I would point you to verse 22, which I think holds the key. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's an interesting symmetry to that verse, isn't there? As in Adam all die, so also as in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, if we want to talk about the second half, which I think is the answer to the question, you know, how does the resurrection give us hope today? We first need to examine the first half of this verse. As in Adam, all die. We need to talk about death. Death is a major theme in this passage. The words dead, death, 
fallen asleep, appear 12 times in this handful of verses. And the Bible has a very interesting, nuanced understanding of death. You see, death in the Bible, it's not just when the heart stops beating. It's not just when the brain ceases to function. Death is far more nuanced and profound than that. Verse 26 is the final time that death is mentioned in this passage. It says, the final enemy to be destroyed is death. A better translation would be, the final enemy to be destroyed is the death. The final enemy to be destroyed is capital D, death. There's a book, and I'm sorry, I don't know the title of it, but there's a chapter in this book called The Future Hope of the Dead in Christ. And I think it has a very interesting way of explaining the biblical perspective on death. And so to help me read this quote, I've invited Stephen, would you come on up and read for us to help us understand the Bible's perspective on death? Capital D, death, comes to us as an alien and destructive force. There's nothing natural about it. It is our enemy, and it is God's enemy. Indeed, Paul calls it the last enemy. Death in this form is out to steal life from human beings, but it does not stop with individuals. Death wants to capture territory, to possess principalities, It desires to dehumanize all institutions, poison all relationships, set people against people in warfare, replace all love with hate, transform all words of hope into blasphemy, to fuel the fires of distrust, to lead people to the depths of despair, to shatter all attempts to build community and to make a mockery of God, faith, and the gift of life. It is the pestilence that stalks in darkness and the destruction that wastes at noonday. Capital D, death, is not natural in this world. It wasn't part of the original DNA of creation. The Bible tells us that our first parents who were created to reflect perfectly the image of God to the rest of the cosmos, they weren't satisfied with that. They weren't satisfied to reflect God's image. They wanted to be gods themselves. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Capital D, death, is the logical consequence of when we decide to pursue our own agenda instead of God's agenda. And so capital D death came through the sin of our first parents and it continues to be spread by us today. And we see death in our world in a million little ways, don't we? We can think about the death of relationship. We see that in marriages that break down or friendships that used to be so close and now they're separated by bitterness and distrust. We see the epidemic of loneliness in our city and our culture. We can think about the death of dreams. You know, we we want to own a home, but we know it's out of reach. We want to be married, and we're not. We wish that we could have more children, or we could have a child. It doesn't seem to be possible, and our dreams have died. We see capital D, death, in societal breakdown. Greed, injustice, corruption, violence, crime, and so on. 
We see capital D death in the way that nature is being oppressed and crushed. We see capital D death in the way that our bodies age and break down. We see capital D death in the deadening of our souls. We've been hurt so many times that we become calloused and numb. Death is the pestilence that stalks in darkness and destroys at noonday. And humanity had no hope against capital D, death. But Jesus came to go toe to toe with death. We celebrated on Holy Week Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem where he intended to do battle with the forces of death and death massed itself like storm clouds around him. When Jesus went on the cross, death did its worst. It piled on him and piled on him and piled on him until he was utterly buried and swallowed. And death had won. Or so it seemed. Because three days later, Jesus burst through the darkness of death into glorious day. And he broke the power of death in the process. And the passage, the remaining of our passage today from verse 23 onwards tells us the order of what would happen next. It tells us that Jesus' resurrection was that of a first fruit. Now, whenever I hear the word first fruit, the image that comes to my mind is the image of a farmer who owns an orchard, maybe an apple orchard or something. And the first fruit, the farmer goes out and he sees one of his trees has finally produced some ripe fruits. It's the first one. And so he goes and he picks an apple off the tree and he looks at it. He looks at its shape, its texture, its color, its taste. And based on this first fruit, the farmer can say, here's what the rest of my harvest is going to be like. And so the fact that Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit tells us a couple things. It tells us, one, there's going to be a big harvest. And it tells us what our resurrection will be like and what God's new creation will be like. Jesus is the first fruit. The passage tells us, secondly, that when Jesus comes back, all who belong to him will be raised to meet him. You know, it's interesting. Most of the older cemeteries are intentionally designed with the headstones facing east. Did you know that? They're designed facing east because the assumption is that Jesus would come in the east and then we could rise facing him. And then last of all, the passage tells us, after Jesus' people have rised, Jesus will do battle with death and he will finally throw out death completely from our world. He will restore this world to a place of peace, love, justice, life, and hope. Revelation 21 describes what this new creation will be like when um, it says that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor death, nor pain. It's a beautiful image. But I want to get practical here because we're talking a little bit theoretically. And so let's get practical with some examples as we conclude. What is our hope? Coming back to the intro, what is our hope when we read in the newspaper that there are war crimes happening in places like Mariupol and Bucha? What is our hope? Is it simply to say, well, those civilians, at least they're in heaven now. The Apostle Apostle Paul would say, no, that's not good enough. Our hope for Ukraine is that Jesus himself is going to come to that land on behalf 
of every victim of injustice. Jesus Christ himself is going to beat every sword into a plowshare. And Jesus is going to make Ukraine a land of peace and prosperity to be enjoyed by its resurrected population. What is our hope when we hear things like there's smog that's choking people in the developing world, in cities of the developing world, or we hear that the Great Barrier Reef is being bleached, or that animals are being endangered or going extinct? What's our hope? Is it simply that at least we're going to go to heaven and, you know, hopefully it's better than that? No. Our hope is that the creator himself is going to come to this world. He's going to liberate creation from the bonder under which it currently is groaning. Jesus himself is going to restore the rainforests such that the trees clap their hands for him. He's going to drive the filth out of the oceans such that they roar his, pla- his praises. And he's going to bring peace to the animal world such that the lion lays down with the lamb. And what's our hope at the graveside of a loved one whom we've lost? Is it simply that we're going to see them again in heaven someday? We have a better hope than that. They are going to live here again. They're going to walk this world again. You're going to hold their hand again. You're going to dance with them. Their body is going to be restored in such a way that it is never again vulnerable to sickness, aging, infirmity, or death. And so church, I want to challenge us. Don't accept a Christian message which sidelines the resurrection Don't accept a faith without hope for this world because the resurrection is our hope and it's the hope for our world. Amen. We do have some time now uh, for uh, a bit of interaction. So if you have any questions, I'd invite you, you can either text the phone or if you don't have time, um, you can email me at graham at gracetoronto.ca and I'd be happy to get to those later this week. Stephen, do we have any questions today? We have a lot. Okay. <laughs> so um, please email Graham at gracetoronto.ca because I don't think we'll be able to get through all of them. Uh, but I'll do my best to just, uh, um, yeah, ask you a few. This is the first question. If we are dead to our sins and they're buried with Christ, but Christ is raised, so are our sins also raised with Christ? When we're raised again, are we, are we still sinners? I think um, the person who asked that question, I'm glad you're taking the Bible seriously. I think it's important to know when the Bible is using images to communicate a truth. So the image the Bible is using is that our sins have died and been buried with Christ. But when Christ was risen, those things are left behind in the grave. Um, That's the answer for that one. Thank you. Uh, The next question is uh, if it is not so that at death our bodies die because it is mortal, our soul, our soul leaves the body and our soul goes to heaven, then what happens when we die? I thought that when we die, our soul lives on, and if we're a believer in Christ, we are given a new body when we go to heaven. Good question, yeah. So, so and, and I'm glad that you asked this, because it is confusing, isn't it? Um, the main thing that the New Testament tells us about what happens to people when they die. The language that the New Testament uses, it doesn't talk about dying and going to heaven. That's not its language. The language used by the New Testament is that you are with Christ. Right, the Apostle Paul says, um, 
It is better to be with Christ. He doesn't say it's better to be in heaven. And so the, the teaching of the New Testament, what we can know for certain is that when a, a believer dies, they go to be with Christ, whatever that means. But that, that's not your ultimate destiny. You know, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, often we think that's the end of the story, to be in paradise. But I've heard, um, well, again, this is N.T. Wright, I heard him talking about paradise. Paradise was like a stopping place on a journey. It's not the end point. The end point is resurrection and new creation. So for those that have fallen asleep in Christ, as the text said, they are with Christ. We're confident about that. But that's not the end of the story. The story will continue when they are raised to new life in this world. Maybe one more? Yeah, and um, this last one is, um, I think it's an important question, just asking about um, how you can really truly uh, come to believe in Jesus. So just giving a little bit of pretext for you. Um, Here it is. It says, um, I know that we should not rely on our efforts to enter the kingdom, but sometimes I can't help but wonder if the strength of my belief is enough to have accepted Jesus into my heart. I keep asking myself, do I truly believe in Jesus enough? What if it's just surface level? How can I break out of this habit and test my belief? Mm. Oh, what an honest question. Thank you for asking that. It's hard to um, pastor someone from a distance like this, so I wish I could sit down and actually chat with you. But um, quick thought for you would be, I think perhaps a better question to ask would be, Instead of focusing, how strong is my faith in Jesus? How strongly am I hanging on to him? I think it'd be good to flip the question and ask, how strongly is Jesus hanging on to me? In uh, John chapter 10, Jesus preaches, he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so I think it'd be a good thing for you to ponder, how strongly does Jesus have me? It's a good thing, you know, to assess ourselves, to think about, you know, am I pursuing Christ and that kind of thing. I don't want to diminish that, but I think we need to place our emphasis where the Bible would place it, and that's on God's strong hands holding you. I'd love to chat with you more about that, so please, me? Oh, okay, I must be out of time. They're playing me (laughs) off, so um, yeah, I'd love to chat with you about that. Please email me.